0: Sometimes you get lucky, and your game is an instant hit without investing in growth. For everyone else, there's IronSource. IronSource is a game tech company which builds technologies that helps you guys take your games to the next level. The company is developing the leading growth engine for mobile games, offering a robust monetization management platform and data-driven user acquisition platform. What sets IronSource apart is their ability to close the monetization and marketing loop to help developers supercharge growth in a super-efficient way. So, whether you're looking to drive revenue or to scale your audience smartly and ROI positively, Iron Source is a perfect partner for you. We here at Deconstructor Fund are giant fans of Iron Source because it's truly a growth platform that a developer of all sizes can leverage. So, we suggest that you head on to ironsource.com, that's ironsrc.com, and check out the platform for yourself. Thanks. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Twig 69. On the podcast today, we have myself, Joe Kim, Adam Telfer, and Eric Kress. And in this week's episode, we will be covering the following news articles. First, LED Games raises $5 million for cross play co op games by VentureBeat. Second, Phil Spencer, we see Amazon and Google as the main competitors by GamesIndustry.biz. Third, Rockstar Games co founder Dan Hauser leaving the company by Polygon. Fourth, Ubisoft's Uplay revenue is up 73% compared to last year by VentureBeat. And finally, Call of Duty players spend more in-game after season pass and loot boxes removed. All right, guys. Any updates before we jump into the update about Glue? Let's
1: Let's jump into it. Yeah.
0: (laughs) All right. So the big news that some people have been talking about from last week is that Glue shares did shoot up by 22% last Thursday on February 6th and the story behind this from what i have read seems to be that the increase in fourth quarter revenue which rose 18% and the fact that they showed a 7 cent per share net profit is what investors seem to be getting excited about from my perspective the the way that i view glue is really along three dimensions talked about this on the podcast before, but how they're doing from new games perspective, which I am not super optimistic about. Second, Live ops, which, you know, they've been doing an awesome job, have spoken a lot about how good that Crowdstar team has been doing, and then competition. And I think it's really along the competition axis that has been surprising, at least to me, in the sense that a lot of companies have talked about going after Design Home and Covet Fashion, but I'm not seeing anything in the market that's actually been able to achieve any level of traction. And it seems to indicate a sort of deep cultural moat around these types of games that are female focused about rich American people's lives. And you can kind of imagine that if you're a designer and sitting in Beijing or somewhere in Russia, it's probably harder for you to design against this type of a game rather than an RPG. But I don't know, maybe that's it. Maybe it's something else. And then just really quickly, I'm not a finance guy, but just looking at the earnings, I do think that certainly great for GLUE. I'm glad they uh, had a good quarter, but a few things did concern me a little bit, Uh, basically three things. So they did show an 8 million net profit, but one, they did pull in 13 million into the quarter due to Apple payments timing. So they will take a hit next quarter. Secondly, GNA was 8 million lower than last year. And the lowest ever as a percentage of revenue and it's kind of strange that when you look at their dna as a percentage of revenue it's so low especially compared with other companies such as zynga and historically that did seem a little bit weird to me and third the ua was about two and a half million less this past quarter relative to fourth quarter of 2018 if you look at it as a percentage of revenue Uh, again i'm not a finance guy but i'm just saying i'm not sure how good the quality of that seven cent EPS is, but I don't know. Why don't we throw it to a real finance guy? Eric, what's your take?
2: <laughs> well, I would say the stock move uh, was primarily related to what we call a short squeeze, where people expected the stock to go down after the print, and then they reported better than expected numbers because of a lot of like the financial movement stuff that you were talking about. And so they were clamoring for shares and they bought a bunch of shares to cover their shorts and the stock goes up a lot because glue in general is what's known as a very a relatively thinly traded stock so there's not a lot of stock that trades on there so you, you can see a big dramatic moves um because the next day the stock was down 10 percent so it was up 22 and then down 10 we'll see how they continue so The fundamental thing with glue is that despite whatever quarterly earnings they released this last time is that these guys are barely growing revenue and this year, and they are super low in terms of overall profitability. And that's not a very attractive asset to own. And the other thing is that it seems that with investors anyway, uh, the CEO, Uh, Mr. Nick is really talking up Disney now as something that could be really big for them and the beta metrics just don't prove that out And I think they're gonna really struggle with the downloads too so what I'm looking for is that they are gonna pump downloads with a lot of unprofitable UA spend and try to boost this thing up, but because the monetization is relatively weak you know, I think this game is gonna kind of die on the vine, but we will see and the the good news though with this company is that Design Home and Covet and Baseball all are doing well. So like there's just baseline revenue that seems to be going nowhere. So if if that revenue can continue, they could basically meander and do like 5 percent growth on top line with some of their new releases, perhaps. But uh, but the minute that those games start to struggle or competition comes in to take them out, oh man, it's it's end of days type stuff. So. But for now, those games are just holding steady and grow. Uh, Tap Sports in, in particular grew. So that's really the positive of them. They have like this baseline revenue and if they were to able to execute on the studio side, then they they could start building revenue similar to what Zynga has accomplished So, And that leads us to the next thing. So Zynga actually was up like 12% after the print as well. And I think actually that was partly a short squeeze. I think there were huge numbers of like relatively smart hedge funds, guys that I know in the space that were thinking that Zynga was going to miss the quarter, guide less than what people had thought, right? In terms of what the consensus was. And it didn't happen, right? They basically crushed the quarter and improved profitability, not only for the year, for for last year, for the Q4, but also guided to a 20% profit for next year, when people expected them to be 18, because what I would call Frank has been sandbagging for quarters and quarters and quarters. Um, so, and on top of that, they delayed their stupid games again, Farmville and modern combat to second half of, of 2020, which Jesus get the geese games out for Christ's sake. It's like unbelievable. Like to me that they just keep pushing, pushing, pushing. But anyway, their guidance was really strong, even with these, these title pushes and delays, delays, delays. And so, they're looking like he sandbagged the entire year again. So they're just gonna beat and raise every quarter for the remainder of the year. So Zynga seems to be really, really good shape. Um, and what I would say is that Zynga is on far more firm footing than Glue is in terms of, of, of their futures. Um, they still have this cannibalization issue that we still need to resolve. Uh, but overall, I think um, you know, Zynga is in pretty good shape for calendar 20. I think
1: Farmville and Modern Combat are still, like they still need time in soft launch. That's obvious based on the beta metrics. And also you said Modern Combat. I think you mean Puzzle Combat, right? Oh, sorry. Yeah. Puzzle Combat. Yeah. <laughs> I'm getting confused with COD too. Yeah, but yeah, based on the, the metrics in soft launch, it's obvious they need more time.
2: Wrong. Come on. I, man. I, know, I know you one. want
1: to push it, but still. Like, <laughs> uh, I, I don't dude, want another a game COD like, mobile.
2: A, a game like that, dude, like Farmville in particular, I think the met- metrics look good. You're right. Modern, combat, I mean, whatever. Puzzle Combat might need some, a little bit more time to bake, but um, I think Farmville looks good. Let's jump in article one. So, uh, first article LOD Games
1: raises $5 million for cross play co op games. Sounds like it's actually on PC console, not a mobile. Um, so, just so you know, LOD Games is X ex- Riot, um, X League of Legends. Funding is from Andreessen Horowitz, uh, A16Z, and one of the Ventures so of course very very high pedigree. So if you don't know Andreessen, at least that's like Facebook slack Instagram Airbnb So definitely incredibly high pedigree as well as they are recently investing in other what I would call free-to-play HD startups so PC console like Singularity 6 which are focused on creating least like online societies So um, these guys are definitely heavily invested in trying to figure out um, this space uh, the pitch highly social engaging content, uncompromised crossplay, being able to play the same game on every platform. This is all done in a PvE co-op space. I'm thinking games like Deep Rock, Galactic, Destiny, Division, Minecraft, WoW, this type of thing, this type of space. So just to be self-serving, co-op space, I'm gonna be talking about this in depth at GDC because I find that most people aren't really aware of how different and how difficult this space is in comparison to PvP-style engagement. Like, what it takes to sustain players in Apex, which, like, as we covered last year, is, like, still quite a high order for something like Respawn to to shift their company towards. What it takes to sustain players in Apex is very different than what it takes to sustain players in PvE-style games like Destiny, Co-op, or not. These games can easily turn into a giant content treadmill with inexperienced teams or just can't sustain because players just rip through the game's content too quickly. Um, And I would say there are definite reasons why games like Destiny, which have massive player base and actually really good retention as a model, just burns cash to the point that Activision backs out of that business. The leading devs in this space, at least in the West on PC console, I would argue are uh, digital Extremes with Warframe and Grinding Gears games with Path of Exile. like that's, Those are the two models that I'd be following. And a lot of it has to do with cost-effective content. So while I'm bullish on the co-op space, I just hope that they can learn from the
2: many mistakes of PvE services in the past. Uh, Eric? Yeah, I mean, this is my wheelhouse, dude. I absolutely love these games, You know, whether it's World of Warcraft, Destiny, Division, these co-op PvE-focused games. And... I know there's PvP in all these games, but the, the real focus of all these games uh, that we're talking about are are PVE. So I don't think there's just many people that have done this right. And even Destiny, with all the resources they have, as well as Division, just did not get the end game right uh, on this. Um, and from my perspective, you know, like I'm you know old man Care Bear, right? I can't compete in PvP. So having a PvP PVE option or co op PVE option this is the only way that I can really enjoy games because getting your ass handed to you by 10 year olds is just not fun. Right. Um, So I'm all for like trying to make this stuff work in, in a, in a PVE, you know, co-op type framework. Uh, But I agree with you. I think part of the challenge is that World of Warcraft has spent billions and billions of dollars developing their PVE architecture and content treadmill, and they still spend hundreds of millions of dollars uh, to develop content. And that's what you're in when you're dealing with PVE systems. Uh, It seems that Warframe is a good example of something to look at uh, that's been able to do that. And what we were talking about before uh, the podcast is that, I mean, I think this is kind of the holy grail of, of gaming for this cycle, is for someone to figure out how to do pay-to-play, play, pay-to-progress uh, PVE content on console, right, with some of these big franchises. And if you unlock that potential, where you, know, you get unlimited spend in order to upgrade, uh, evolve your characters, or your collections, or whatever you're doing in a PVE system, like a shooter um, or even an action game, Like that's what we've been waiting for because these I do I'm not a believer in these cosmetic economies and so when I look at this particular announcement and I don't know these guys from Adam you know from uh, not you Telford but (laughs) I don't know anything about these guys but I would imagine that they're going to have the same kind of mentality where it's going to be a cosmetic type economy and 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 that's just not going to do it I I just don't think that that is something that's that's scalable in any way so if they really start to think out of the box and how they can apply you know, more of a upgrade progression type economy uh, where it is a bit to pay to win or pay to progress or pay to whatever and figure out the content stuff, I think this could be huge. And so again, we've been talking about this for a while now, right? And reasons out there, one up. you know, I don't know, what other companies are out there? Like London Ventures, they're throwing money at this stuff, right? So for AA, AAA guy developers, they're looking to try to figure out how to get some of that Fortnite money and build something really cool and unique there's cash out there, and so I'm hoping that from from all these investments that you know one or two of these games hit and they try they figure out the uh, what I th- is considered the holy grail of uh, next gen monetization design. So there you go, or maybe it's Adam who's going to figure it out for uh, WB.
1: <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa! I'm I'm trying not to
2: be self serving on this podcast,
1: you know, but I I would like money to build this game. I would love money for, to build this game.
2: <laughs> anyway. All
0: right, moving on to the next article. So Phil Spencer. We see Amazon and Google as the main competitors. So Xbox boss, Phil Spencer says, PlayStation and Nintendo are no longer the platform's main contenders. And he says, quote, when you talk about Nintendo and Sony, we have a ton of respect for them, but we see Amazon and Google as the main competitors going forward. He further states, the traditional gaming companies are somewhat out of position. I guess they could try to recreate Azure, but We've invested tens of billions of dollars in cloud over the years. The article points out as well that in Microsoft's latest quarterly financial report, it was revealed that game revenue was down 21%, but that Game Pass subscriptions had doubled. I'm not sure how we should interpret that, but maybe <laughs> one of you guys can talk about that. <laughs> so while this article was trending, likely due to being on a bigger news publication platform, And the more link-baity title, the original article this article was based on is from a new publication called Protocol. In that article, there was actually a fair amount of speculation on other tech companies jumping into cloud-based gaming. And so let me go over those real quick. First, they talked about Apple. And Protocol is suggesting the next Apple TV will become a close competitor to Nintendo Switch. Also mentioned Facebook and quoted Facebook's VP of Special Gaming Initiatives, Jason Rubin, as stating, for Facebook not to notice gaming now would be damn near impossible. And then notes that Facebook actually acquired Spanish cloud gaming company PlayGiga last December for $78 million. And then also in reference to Amazon, protocol quoted Wedbush Securities Analyst Michael Pactor, who stated, I would bet everything that it's this year an actual game streaming service from Amazon, no later than the launch date for the Xbox Series X and the PlayStation 5. Anyway, we've talked about cloud-based stuff a bunch here before, so I'ma tap out on this one beyond this conjecture of other companies jumping in and let Eric and Adam give their takes. Guys, what do you guys think?
2: So, you know, look, I respect Phil, but this article just seems like total PR nonsense, right? I mean, <laughs> I, I don't see any evidence out there that customers want streaming. I think the, the customers of consoles, and we've talked about this a gazillion times, uh, want consoles, <laughs> right, or PCs, right? Um, so they can make, you know, Phil and then his technology, and I, I'm not doubting that their technology is amazing, but you can build the best toaster in the world, but if no one wants to eat toast, then what's the point, right? I mean, spend all you want. So if you want to spend billions and billions of dollars that on a service that doesn't make any sense for the market, you know, that's your prerogative, right? At least in the, in the short term. And what I don't like about the article is calling out Sony and Nintendo, you know, given their position in the market. I mean, hell, it's Nintendo just outpaced their install base, right? For, uh, for their console, right? And it just seems a bit dumb in my view, anyway. And... You know, honestly, this is exactly how they lost the cycle last time, right? They basically were giving customers a $600 device with required connect and this digital ecosystem that no one really wanted and the customers revolted against. And now they're pushing this idea of cloud gaming, which there is absolutely no demand for. And, and, and they're basically upsetting and, and kind of likely pissing off the people that they, the customers they are trying to attract, which are the core, you know, the core audience. So. I guess given the current state of the market and the competition they're facing for both Sony and Nintendo, uh, I'm surprised they're actually pushing xCloud as some kind of differentiator, right? Um, I don't think that's a good strategy, frankly, for the next three to four years. Now, however, as I've said many times over the long term, I can't say that I disagree. I think you know, they could be in a very enviable position, maybe eight, five, eight, 10 years from now when they really get the tech working And the content is there for the broader audience and the service is actually usable by a broader audience. But I I honestly do think that is eight to 10 years away and it creates, and I don't wanna just go over these points over and over again, but as as a quote unquote paradigm shift of consumers go from a uh, cloud-based, console-based ecosystem to a cloud-based ecosystem. Um, and, and as a side note, first of all, don't listen to Pactor on this stuff. I, I really don't think you can put Amazon on this list right now, right? There is absolutely no evidence that they are close to releasing a service. Now, will they go in beta? Maybe this year, right? But I, I, I kind of think it's years away. Um, and, and I think both, Frank, and I'm going to make the same point, is that frankly, I think both Amazon and Google will likely white label it and their tech and let other creators use their service. But I, I really do think it's five to 10 years away. I just don't think um, that the customer is ready and, and the technology's not really ready, nor the internet infrastructure is ready, um, nor people's at home connections are ready. <laughs> so, and I don't think even by that point, it's gonna be a guaranteed success. I just think it's something that's gonna be part of the ecosystem as another distribution method uh, for our publishers. So, bam,
1: that's it, bam. Yeah, no, I agree on on most of this. Like number one, like it's just headline grammic. Switch just surpassed Xbox One. PS Five obviously will be dominating the early part of the next cycle. So Microsoft, <laughs> these are your competitors. Um, it's obvious Microsoft is going all in on streaming and Game Pass which is gonna be coming at the cost of their short term in terms of the Xbox X launch and years to come to actually get streaming to a tipping point and get Game Pass to a tipping point that the audience there makes sense. But just leave it to Microsoft to actually argue that the winner is gonna be solely based on tech. Like that, that's just what they've always argued in, in that it's only gonna be between xCloud versus Stadia versus whatever Amazon has, uh, when it's, that's not really gonna be the case. Um, one thing I, I would argue is that it won't be ten years. Um, I think I think it'll be less than that. I think it'll be closer to five. Um, I'm actively playing on Steam Link and PS4 right now, and I think like Wi-Fi actually works a lot better than expected. Um, I think uh, even just getting uh, PS4 and PC games um, streaming to whatever device you have in your house on a Wi-Fi connection um, can be compelling. Like I, I I'm not sure if if you've played Nintendo switch that much, but like being able to play PC and console types of experiences where you want is compelling. So that's why I'm saying it's closer to five years. Um, so I think there will be a trend towards that, but streaming by Wi-Fi maybe within five years feasible by Google, Amazon and Microsoft. But say we eventually actually get to that tipping point where streaming is that good and demanded. What matters at that point is still content. So if the content is locked behind Sony, EA and Nintendo, then whoever actually just partners with them. And as, as you said, like in a white box way with those content providers will be the winner, not Microsoft. So I don't know, you can argue with me about Switch and, and PC stuff, but my, my sense is that it's closer, but still content matters.
2: Yeah, yeah. So I, what I, do you guys
0: think about Game Pass? Like for me, when I got my Xbox, I got Game Pass for free and it literally, like I would have bought Witcher 3 and Outer Worlds, but I didn't have to because I had Game Pass but in terms of that data point about game revenue being down 21%, but game game pass subscriptions doubling, feel like it's pretty cannibalistic personally, but I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on that. I mean, that's
2: the definition of cannibalistic, right? I mean, yeah. like when your software is down 21%, how can you tout like your subscription is up, right? That's like, but I mean, frankly, though, it's this part of the cycle that, Everyone's down, like uh, uh, Sony was down on hardware dramatically, but they actually were flat on revenue for software, which is really shocking, actually. That's probably a little bit better than I expected. So, But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I do think it's cannibalistic. But this is, now, having said that, I don't think that's a bad strategy. I mean, I think having you know, subscription type stuff is, is, is interesting and, and can help grow the business. And if you're first party, I don't think it's a good idea for third party. I think it's a great idea for Microsoft to do subscriptions i just don't think this distribution method is going to be viable i just don't think it's going to be viable for a very long period of time i think there's way too many issues with this particular distribution method that's going to create friction for adoption and again 18 to 44 year old males that have been playing consoles for the last you know 20 years are not going to be interested in in a new service from google or amazon right they're going to be buying it from microsoft or most likely Sony.
0: Because <laughs> so. when
2: you say like this specific method of distribution, you're talking about like,
1: I don't have the game on a console locally, right? I don't optimize anything around my PC or on my console. I have to stream it from a server way out there. That's that's the specific distribution method that you're saying that you have issue with. Yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. okay. Just because just like with my point, I'm saying I, I see there's there's a, a viable path towards like being able to play my PS4 and PS, PC games when it, wherever I am in the house is, is kind of where things are going, right? Like if you look at the young generation being able to play Call of Duty, Terraria, all these types of things on mobile, there are, there are players that do want to be able to pick up their game and go anywhere, at least within their house to be able to play. But I completely agree with you that that does not have to be coming from a giant server farm in the middle of nowhere to get that service.
2: Yeah, I'm going to defer to many other podcasts. We've talked about this before, but I, I think the, the one thing that you touched on that's critical is content, right? So I think if, if like Nintendo, for instance, created a streaming service for their content, I think that is compelling, right? That's how you get people engaged and, and into it, right? I don't think Microsoft has that type of content. I think Sony definitely will have that type of content. so. The minute that they are really opening up their their content, will at least compel people to do it. Now, if the experience is in any way shoddier than doing it on the consoles, it's not going to take off, right? Particularly with yep. this core audience. And the other point I want to make is that what, what what crazy about the Microsoft thing is that these guys punted on this stuff at E three last year. Like they didn't even they talked about it for thirty seconds in their in their in their in their in their, in their presentation and. It wasn't and I you could say maybe they just weren't ready to talk about it. It just felt like it was an audible that they were not going to be focused on this, right? And so now for him to say, oh, well, this is gonna be the future, it just seems really odd that that these kind of articles are coming out. I just don't think as it's a, it's a real part of their overall launch strategy for the Xbox. And and these kind of articles make me feel wrong about that, but um, but we'll see when they get more announcements for their for the release, whether or not they're doing subscription models. I mean, I know they're going to be doing subscription models, but whether or not it has anything to do with xCloud at all. So, okay. Rockstar founder, Dan Hauser is leaving the company. So Dan Hauser is a VP of uh, creative at Rockstar. Um, Him and his brother started Rockstar ages ago, 22 years ago, something like that. And he's leaving next month. Uh, The announcement was made in a very unceremonious way, by the way, by take two in some 8K, so some filing. So the article reads, after an extended break beginning in the spring of 2019, after the release of Red Dead, uh, Dan Hauser uh, will be leaving the company. His last day will be March 11th. Uh, we're extremely grateful for his contributions. And uh, he, Rockstar Games has built the most critically acclaimed, commercially successful games worldwide, blah, 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 blah. And uh, the team remains focused on current and future projects. Um, So along with like his brother, Sam, these guys have been part of Rockstar since 98, it says. Um, And they've created Grand Theft Auto, Red Dead Redemption, Max Payne, Bully, and a few other games. And his role primarily was the creative guy. And these guys were not like the hands-off type as far as I understand it. And they were basically involved in the day-to-day uh design and and feeling of all these overall games and they're an absolute perfectionist in in all that they did and him leaving is a huge deal like it's not a positive by any stretch of the imagination i just want to be clear on that but it's not the end of the end of the world right um it, it feels like he was just done he was ready to go i mean he took a huge break after doing red dead last year uh, for a year and he wasn't contributing, obviously, for a year, and perhaps he's just kind of burnt out. I mean, the guy has made a gajillion dollars, right? There's no reason. I mean, money is not an issue, right? At this point. Um, and management in, in meetings after this call or after this 8K was released, kind of were making the implication that they were pushing him out. Like they were like, like, yeah, maybe he was just kind of done and that it, he he was not as integral to the operations as he was in the past. But this guy is the heart and soul of this this org to some degree, him and his brother. So again, if both brothers had left, that would be bad. That would be bad because that's like the two heads of the creative juices of this company leaving. And I don't know how easy it would be to keep uh, the rest of the org intact ch- if these guys were to leave at once um, because I think we would see some flight from the bigger guys there. But... I would imagine at this point they have a deep bench and that they will be fine in terms of getting this stuff done. Because the one thing about uh, Rockstar, and Rockstar is a very insular company and not many, much information is known. It was like kind of the blizzard of old, right, where everyone was really tight-lipped until Actors is single-handedly destroying that company. Rockstar is almost like a cult right? It's like, once you go in, you don't come out, right? So you don't hear a bunch of ex-Rockstar guys starting new studios, like on a a very frequent basis, like they just stay forever, right? And some of my friends have been interviewing there. The interview process is like, anyway, it doesn't matter. But the point is, is that they hire people that want to be at Rockstar, right? And they stay, seem to stay forever, right? Now, I know there are people out there that have, have spun out of Rockstar, but it just, it feels much more, you know, Insulated, you know, it's like, um, yeah, whatever. So I am not too worried about it now. What I would am worried about, and what I told my clients, is that if we see Sam leave anytime soon, or we start hearing of exoduses of of major groups of people out of Rockstar, then we start to worry (laughs) about the futures. Um, The stock uh, was down five percent on this news, and then the earnings release came out, and the stock was down another. 10%, 10%, uh, primarily on concerns about pipeline. So in some ways, this is a little bit of a concern on pipeline. If, if the your creative guy is leaving, that means that either he has not been responsible for what's going on with the next game for GTA 6 or whatever, or they're starting pretty soon on the next GTA or something. Like The implication is a little bit dubious. And given how bad the pipeline looks like for the next couple of years, I think Rock, uh take two in general is, is in a, in a challenging spot. So, anyway, I, I honestly don't think this is that big of a deal, and uh, and uh, we'll have to see uh, how it kind of evolves and and if if the issue gets if if, if there becomes more of a flight risk with uh, more of the people. So, okay, the next article is about uh, Ubisoft. You play uh, revenues are up seventy three percent compared to last year. So this was an article from our boys at VentureBeat, what's his name, Jeff Grubb. And so Ubisoft had a tough year, right? Because they basically had to postpone a lot of their games. So their revenues were down significantly um, on tough comps and just a rough year for them overall. But the bright side of their article was that revenue on Uplay grew 73% in the nine months ending December 31st um, compared to last year. And they basically said that growth was continuing to show for ongoing things like Rainbow Six Siege, Assassin's Creed Odyssey, and, and also like with, with, with other updates across their portfolio. And also because they didn't release their games on Steam for Division Two and Ghost Recon. So here's my thinking. What's crazy about this article is they didn't mention Epic once, right? So the big news last year was that Epic became the primary distribution vehicle of Division, right? And so, to me, it's really obvious that Epic is kind of the cause for the success of Uplay this last year, right? So they released—I mean, they got a gazillion dollars from Epic for exclusivity out off of, of Steam for Division, Ghost Recon, and other catalog. So. I don't know why this wasn't even mentioned in the article because these guys covered this stuff. Anyway, so this is a huge win 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 for Ubisoft, right? Because not only are they cashing huge checks from Epic, which is just straight cash, right? So straight 100% margin cash, they get a massive boost of PC sales on Uplay, in which they get about 100% margins versus the 70% they were getting from Steam, right? So win, win, win. And then on top of that, they're getting access to all the customers that are acquiring straight from Uplay. So it's part of their ecosystem now. So Ubisoft is like making out like a bandit here, you know? So it's, it's genius, right? And for the first time, I actually can't blame Ubisoft for jumping on the bandwagon of the new, new thing, uh, because I think this has been a brilliant move for them and one of, the, one of the highlights for last year. But if I can get my tinfoil hat here out here for, Quick second. I just don't understand why Jeff Grubb from VentureBeat would not mention Epic at all in this article, right? Like, it's really easy to come to these conclusions. You know, they've covered Epic in numerous articles about their new system for the past 12 months. And I don't think connecting the dots is really that tough here. I don't know, is there some risk it is exposing Epic, or did Ubisoft ask them not to mention it? I, 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 you know, I think these guys, Jeff, Dean are, you know, really smart guys, but I just can't believe they didn't figure this out and like kind of put this out there as one of the reasons in which Uplay was, was, was so successful in a pretty shitty year for them. So I don't know. That's kind of my quick take on it. I think Uplay has improved as a service, but it's really not all that great. But, uh, but I think because people just don't want to download on Epic, they just moved back to Uplay, right, for, for, for Division and other games. What do you think, Adam?
1: Yeah, I'm not going to go down the conspiracy theory track. <laughs> that can only get me into trouble. But completely agreed on Epic. This is a great story of how the deal with Epic inadvertently moved a ton of PC sales to, to Uplay and got them from that 70% to 100% margin. But uh, just to play a little bit of devil's advocate here, like th- this is great news, but Ubi's units are overall down significantly. So if I'm going to be doing the math here and seeing like how much of a boost they really got from this, I'd be looking at like how much those PC units were down versus say console. Um just because there's there's no data for this, so I'm just going to be speculating. But because like if overall their sales for their key franchises were PC for down for the year, part due to say execution which you would see also on console, but also some of that could have been just from getting off of Steam and now players having to decide like am I going to buy this on Epic or am I going to buy this on Uplay? Um so there's definitely a bunch of this bonus money for that upfront money from Epic as well as going to Uplay but units are still down so people aren't playing their new games. So many of these games they were actually expecting a critical mass of players to be engaged and spending in these games for years, right? Like Division and Goes Recon were both uh services they were trying to actually drive engagement like they had before. And in one case, actually with Division, um, their raids were actually only really working on PC. The the console versions were not working. So in essence, like these these services would have worked great on PC, but they they didn't because they couldn't create create that critical mass. So the boost is definitely an interesting story, but I just want to be doing math in the full picture and, and how much they lost by just not reaching that same audience.
2: Yeah, I mean Division 2 was a huge disappointment. So they were down significantly from the original Division, which is always has made sense to me. I just think people try these games they either love them or hate them. It's like it's really hard to build a sequel of something that's unique. And I think Looter Shooters are just a certain type of person like myself that loves these and I will buy every one, but I think there's a lot of people that are not. But I guess my point and maybe I wasn't as clear as I wanted to be on the, on, on the my thing is that if indeed epic was a real success for ubisoft then we should have seen a huge declines in uplay right because that's the whole point is to push distribution and get paid for it to epic so uh clearly that didn't happen so i don't think epic was a success for ubisoft is kind of the conclusion here um and i think these big guarantees are probably not going to happen as frequently this next year what do you think joe
0: yeah, I only have one point, which is essentially a point on Ubi's notes with respect to live services revenue. And we talked about this last week in discussing EA's earnings, but live services for EA has been on a growth care. And we see this is also happening at Ubi. So I can't pronounce French names, but. Guillemot. Guillemot noted that player recurring investment. Is up significantly. Uh, PRI includes microtransactions, downloadable content, season passes, and in-game advertising. So this is similar to the live services revenue from EA. And this part of Ubisoft's business did jump 7.4 percent year over year, 520 million. PRI also accounted for 42.5 percent of Ubisoft's net booking compared to 32.6 percent in the previous year. So. I just want to point out that we are pretty much getting into this fully free-to-play world here. So,
2: all right, right, hold on. But the the reason that they're putting out these metrics, they got to put lipstick on a pig, right? They delayed three games, right? And they just completely torpedoed their year. So,
0: but yeah, Yeah. I mean, I'm not like like the
2: PRI is going
1: to get inflated because now they're relying more and more on their service-based games, which have a higher PRI inherently.
2: But I, I don't disagree with your sentiment. I'm just saying that. Ubisoft put themselves in this position, right? (laughs) When you delay three freaking AAA games, that's like bad news bears, right? So, all right, right. Call of Duty. Call of Duty. All right, the big news finally. Uh,
1: Article Call of Duty players spend more on in game after season pass and loot boxes have been removed. So, Activision's quarter four or quarter four 2019 earnings call just happened, and they had a section specific to Call of Duty Modern, Modern Warfare, so this is PC consoles performance. Um, so overall sales are up double digits, as we already knew, especially compared to last year. For PC specifically, sales on Battle.net jumped by about 50% compared to Black Ops 4, which is great for their launcher. Um, but the key was, as the article really focuses on, is that their in-game net bookings jumped double-digit percentage over Black Ops 4. So, of course, that's going to jump double-digit if their units drop, drop double digits, but still. Um, one thing to note is that Black Ops 4 last year had map packs, which lock players out of content, as well as loot boxes for things like uh, cosmetics. Modern Warfare has now replace that with a battle pass and a shop with only cosmetic content and are dropping free map content um, post-launch so they're not splitting their player base anymore um, baseline for all of this is that of course modern warfare has sold more units multiplied their post-launch engagement and it's sustaining way better in comparison to last year because fundamentally modern warfare is a far better shooter they aren't splitting their player base. And also, I would argue, some of their improved like RPG unlock systems that they have in the game definitely keeps players playing. Um, maybe also has something to do with Fortnite's decline in terms of how well they've been able to sustain. Yeah, at I mean, least we know that Apex doesn't seem to be threatening COD's live business.
2: Well, yeah, I, I have heard that there's a lot of evidence on the, on the platform side that uh, Fortnite decline is kind of pushing people into both Apex as well as Call of Duty. So. There's, there is that kind of tailwind that they're seeing uh, as people try out the new Call of Duty. I would also say the Call of Duty has a great co-op system which attracts a different group too that's all tied into their, you know, their, their
1: uh, monetization ecosystem. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, so, yeah, with more units and lasting engagement, um, as well as, you know, players not leaving for other free-to-play services, you have an inc- obvious increase in their overall net revenue for in-game spending, um, despite moving to, say, a in theory, f- softer monetization scheme. That's battle passes and direct shop. But the fundamentals here are that really like engagement and retention is the most effective multiplier for in-game spending. <laughs> um, you can make a lot of monetizations work if you can create sizable and multiples on your engagement and retention. Um, And really like just from the headline here, most likely 90% of game studios are just gonna take this data point as a reason to move away from loot boxes and go directly towards direct purchase and battle pass model. So (laughs) 2020, 2021 will be years of battle passes being added to literally everything. Um, Yeah, that that will be interesting because I think as I've reported a lot here, battle passes are great at driving conversion. Battle Passes are great at driving engagement, but you do need spend depth outside of those. Um, In other Call of Duty news, mobile also came up on their financial call. So it was confirmed that they got over 150 million downloads. Um, Also talked a little bit about COD Mobile experimenting with ads, uh, likely because monetization isn't happening yet. And King (laughs) has seen some traction here. Uh, It likely could be a contributor. but just said that they haven't really optimized anything. Uh, Also said Call of Duty Mobile was not a material contributor to operating income in Q4, despite a great launch, um, because we invested in our player base uh, and position for long-term success. Reading between the lines here, they've been aggressively spending on marketing.
2: Dude, they spent a gajillion dollars for a game that can't make a dollar a goddamn download. Of course, they're not gonna make any money. Please, give me a break. (laughs) And retention. Uh, they didn't really speak to this, other than
1: saying it's in its early days, which doesn't give me a ton of confidence when that's the response to how is engagement going. Um, but it says that their DAU is multiples higher than any other f- title in franchise history, which, <laughs> like, of course it is. You yeah, started with 150 million downloads. Yeah, it let's wasn't, hope. I'd be right. scared. Right. Um, sorry, I'm just gonna poke fun of those.
2: I, uh, the, the, the advertising thing. I oh, I actually forgot about this because I listened to the call and I'm like. You're going to throw advertising on Call of Duty? I mean, that is insane. You know, like, what what takes you out of an experience more than advertising, particularly for a shooter? That is, like, madness. They're just going to throw, like, an ad, like, a rewarded
1: ad button for, like, getting a loot box a day or getting, like, a, a, a Battle Pass tier a day. And because they got the reach, it could actually be, like, from my experience with adding ads, like, even pretty simple implementations like that can be
2: pretty good. Yeah, but I guess if you're making, like, 50 cents, 60 cents per download, then an extra nickel. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> extra nickel will help, I suppose. Anything you could do to pull but Like the, the, the that. reach they have is impressive. It's just
1: saying that actually Call of Duty Mobile is closer to a hyper casual game in terms of business model than it is to like a, a hardcore.
2: By offering that up, you're admitting failure, right? Like that's I, it, what's ironic is like if the way Bobby positioned it in the call was like, it was something, oh, of course we're gonna do this, right? But that's, you only do that when when things are not working, right? Yeah. That, and, and, and what that proves is that they're probably, their MAU and DAUs are actually pretty good. There are people that play the game. But why don't you just fix the goddamn, you know, what you're selling, right?
1: Yep. Because yep. the thing is now, because if you offer ads and it eats into your cosmetic revenue because it's offering up all these cosmetics that don't matter.
2: Yeah. And right. you're in an even worse situation. Right. And you know my, my my feeling on advertising, so I'm, I'm a little biased here, but it's a sacrilege. All right, JK? JK.
0: Yeah, so uh, just with respect to ads, I think the tricky part here is that ads can actually, for an IP-based game, be highly cannibalistic. And so when you look at Call of Duty Mobile, for example, you buy 80 CPs for 99 cents. And so when you get 25 CP for watching a video, they're likely going to make about one cent on you've basically fucked your value exchange. So you're giving a 31 X multiple for that ad, right? The value exchange cannibalization issue is actually weirdly a concept that's not very well understood in the industry. And especially because you've got a lot of guys like idle games where you've got, you know, inflation resistant economies, but, the tricky part of this is that usually with this kind of approach, if you do like the, I would call the level one strategy of just showing ads to your non-monetizers to avoid cannibalization that with GDPR now, it's not clear whether that's actually legal anymore or not. So we'll see what they do with ads, but that's it actually may not, may not be material, may not contribute. There should be a way of implementing it in a way that's, Positive but to actually do that is actually a very difficult linear programming problem So
1: I definitely would not be giving away CPS Right like that that of course is going to cause obvious cannibalization
0: So on the battle pass front, I think it's it's fairly well established now that battle pass works It's great for shooters. So not a surprise that for the game for the economy and for the audience this is a superior system to a loot box driven system having said that with a cosmetics driven battle pass one would think there are limits to monetization relative to like a fiction friendly setting and art style like fortnite so you know i'm not a regular call of duty player i'm i'm actually just uh, downloading modern war right now actually but the big question mark for me was how far would activision go with the fiction i i kind of doubted they would go crazy because you know, just from all the advertising I've seen and from what I've seen so far. But when I looked in the comments section, they were talking about neon skier outfits and lots of crazy shit, which is generally what you need to sell cosmetics, but you need kind of like the crazy shit and the, and cultural relevancy. So like being able to mess with the art style, doing things like floss and mode, selling like a Batman cape or Stormtrooper outfit and stuff like that. But it sounded like activision is bending the fiction for the money I, it seems like that's the approach that they're taking but i'll find out i'm gonna play modern warfare tomorrow but anyway those are my thoughts on that
1: well it's not no wonder uh, that your connection is so weak you're downloading modern warfare while you're on a podcast <laughs> <laughs>
2: hey i, I do that, want to make one more one more point yeah. about king because uh, it came up and obviously it came up in their activision call. so i would not be putting the banner of success on their advertising initiatives at all right they've made they said that they did 150 million on advertising for their for their franchises which sounds amazing i suppose to people but they were down six percent for the first time in their freaking history like they were actually overall the revenue was probably down six percent for for in-app purchases so The cannibalization concern that I had may be happening. I mean, their games are getting long in the tooth, and they haven't come out with a good, you know, real new game in a long, long time. But advertising is not this boon of growth for them, and they were not committed to growth for next year either. So despite the fact that they're growing this ad crap, you know, year after year and and trying to scale it up, uh, it's not offsetting their declines in in in-app purchases and... And this business is not as healthy as it once was, and we've talked about that before. I mean, there's just a lot of competition out there, a lot better games, frankly, with Playrix and 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 Peak, et cetera. But uh, advertising is not their savior for growth. It's actually, in some ways, I think, contributing to their decline. If I were to make a guess, right? And we'll, we'll see how it how it scales for next year and the year after. But you know, this business is not doing all that well as it has been. So, on that note. <laughs> yeah, good positive end note to the podcast. <laughs>
1: All of King's games are shit, said by Eric Kress. <laughs> oh, my God.
2: Okay. Anyway. <laughs> I think that's it, guys. Uh, I All wish right. Misko was here because then he could have defended glue for whatever reason. He has, he has some kind of hard-on for glue. But um, we'll see you next week. And we have some other podcasts with some interesting folks still front. Looking yeah, forward to getting yeah. to know them. So,
0: interview coming up. Also, have an interview with Damien Yivre, uh, who worked on um, the auto chess game, the Might Magic auto chess game for Ubisoft. So, that will be interesting to, to see as well.
2: Cool. cool. Well, have a good week.
0: All right, guys. Catch you later. Bye.